Our scripture reading this morning is in Matthew 23. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn with us there. That'll be the passage we'll be in. We'll be looking at verses 23 through 28. Beginning in verse 23, the Holy Scriptures read, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we come before you today, and we just ask, Lord, that you would be our teacher. Father, I pray for the one here who is longing from the pain and the trials of this world. Father, help us to see Jesus. Help us to remember that one day soon, his face forever to behold. And when that day comes, all of the darkness and pain of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so, Father, help us to live for eternity, for Christ, not for this world, realizing it is vanishing so very soon. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Help us to be ready for Christ's coming, which is coming so very soon that we might not shrink back in shame for the way that we did not live for Christ in the time that we have. So help us to long for that day, to delight in his appearing, to to be the ultimate joy of our heart, to be with King Jesus for all of eternity. Father, I pray for this church. Father, make us strong. Give us unity. Keep the evil one from us. Help us to not have any sin harbored in our hearts, but help us to kill it by the power of your grace and the Holy Spirit that lives within us. Father, I pray for the leaders in this church, for me as the pastor, for the deacons, for the Sunday school leaders, for all the various people who have influences upon the ministry here, Lord. I just ask that you would bless them in a special way. We thank you for them. We thank you for bringing them to us, for raising them up. But Lord, we ask in the weeks to come here that you would help us to identify uh, the new deacons that we would have, that you would have for us to serve. So Father, we just ask that we would follow your will, not our own there. Guide us, direct our paths, and help us now to understand your word. Help me as I preach. Give me clarity of communication. Give your people clarity of understanding. So we just pray you help me to speak well and us as a people to listen well to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to national security, one of the greatest threats that a a nation faces is certainly spies. Because these spies, they can go undetected, sometimes for years, for decades, and they can cause catastrophic damage upon a nation before it's too late and before it's realized. For example, in 1940, 
Julius Rosenberg worked as an engineer inspector for the U.S. Army at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. And there he served as an inspector of the military equipment. And though he seemed just like everybody else, he seemed like he was on the side of the United States, the truth was Julius Rosenberg, along with his wife Ethel, were actually serving another nation. For they were secretly passing along information to the Soviets. And consequently, because the United States failed to detect these, what they thought were friends as what they truly were, which was enemies, it harmed them in a major way as it led to the Soviets getting, the nuclear, getting nuclear technology, which then led to the terribleness of the Cold War that ensued for the years to come. Years later, during the Korean War, Larry Chin served as a translator for the CIA throughout the war, and though he looked like he was on the side of the U.S., though he appeared to be serving the side of the U.S., uh, the truth was he was actually, too, a spy who was passing along numerous documents and photographs to the Chinese. In fact, this was so damaging that it was later that experts, experts today, historian experts, they say that the war itself, the Korean War, lasted many years longer than it needed to because of this man alone passing on information to the Chinese. And so yet again, because the United States failed to detect an enemy within their midst who was an enemy posing as an ally, it harmed them in a very serious way. Years later, the U.S. still has not picked up on the ability to get rid of all spies. For in 2005, Noshir Gawadia, I think that's right, was an American engineer and he worked on the B-2 stealth bomber. However, though he also looked and acted like he was on the side of the U.S., you get the idea here, he wasn't. And sadly, it wasn't until years later that it was finally discovered that he was also selling secrets, military secrets, of the B-2 stealth bomber to the Chinese, which eventually led to China having their own stealth fighter and cruise missile system, which pushed them ahead to be a superpower that we see on the stage today, which is causing the U.S. numerous problems. The point was, though, this was all because they failed to detect an enemy who was posing as an ally. And so, too, with this in mind, church, we will also be greatly harmed and damaged if we, too, fail to recognize allies that are actually enemies, enemies who are just posing as allies. And so we need to be vigilant in standing against them and rooting them out when they make themselves known. And so it doesn't matter how much they smile. It doesn't matter how kind they might seem to be. It doesn't matter even what they might claim to believe. For the truth is, and please hear me when I say this, we as Christians are in a spiritual war that is the most serious and greatest war of all wars. And there are traitor spies within our midst. There are those who claim to want to help us, who will come in and seem to have much zeal about Christ, the Bible, and Christianity. But the truth is, all they are after is personal gain, just like the traitor spies were who were selling the U.S.'s secrets to others for personal profit. And so too are these individuals. They claim to be on the side of King Jesus, but the truth is, they aren't sons and daughters of the king. They are, as Jesus calls them out to be, as we'll see, sons and daughters of the devil himself. And so with that said, if we're going to stand firm in the faith, if we are going to be effective 
in this battle that we are in, we are going to have to be vigilant, vigilant in our opposition to the armies of darkness that we face. Because there are nothing, what they are is enemy spies who are masquerading as our allies. And so we must not only oppose them, but we must also come to detect them so that they do not go on to cause us major and serious harm. So with that said, to detect imposters in our midst, we need to be on the lookout for three things. And our passage shows us this. First off, unloving hearts, unwashed hearts, and then third, unregenerate hearts. If you've been with us through our study through Matthew, but especially even in just Matthew 23, then you know how often the Bible warns us to be on the lookout for false teachers. It actually tells us to actively look for them, to try to spot them, because they are so dangerous. And this is why Jesus, who is the king of love, I remind you, he warned us when he said in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets who come to you, how? In sheep's clothing. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, what are they? Ravenous wolves. How will we recognize them? Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, how will we recognize them? By their fruits. By their fruits. That sounds a little judgmental, doesn't it? (laughs) Of course it is. That's why we need to not judge wrongly, but judge by the standard God has told us to and judge with righteous judgment. What does Jesus mean by their fruit? Because he's saying here, we will recognize these imposters within the church by their fruit. What kind of fruit? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, it's not apples and oranges. He's talking about the spiritual fruit of the spirit, the spirit of God which is exactly what we've been looking at for roughly the past year and a half and are building up one another class, all about the fruit of the Spirit and how we are to walk in them as God's children. So what are the fruits of the Spirit? Galatians 5, 22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, verse 23, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Think with me for a minute. Why is it that those who belong to Christ, as Paul writes here in Galatians 5.24, why is it that those who belong to Jesus have crucified the sinful flesh, or killed it, we could say, with its sinful passions and desires? Now, let's not answer that too quickly, because this is a vitally important answer that we have to get right. It's actually, it gets to the root of what our faith is, even as Christians. So why is it then that those who belong to Jesus have killed their sinful passions? Is it because they have just worked so hard and diligently in laboring at mastering their flesh? Is it because they have gone through the spiritual Navy SEAL equivalent of training and come out stronger on the other side for it? Is it because they are just so motivated and have so much willpower to obey God and please him? No, it's not. It's not. 
It is because the spirit of God himself lives within them. That is why they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. God himself, the spirit of God who lives within them is the one who is enabling them, who is actually doing that in them. For without that spirit of God in them, there is not a chance you could crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. And that will manifest in your life as bad fruit over and over and over as it does with imposters among us. The only reason we can do this then is because it is God in us who wills us to work. That is why Jesus is talking about bad trees and good trees and how bad trees produce bad fruit and good trees produce good fruit. You're not good because you produce good fruit. You produce good fruit because you're a good tree. And what makes you good? The only one who is good, who is God himself, living within you, working in you, willing you to work changing you, making you something you weren't, because the reality is we are all bad trees from the start. Not a single one of us can produce enough fruit on our own to suddenly make ourselves into a good tree. That's not how it works. God is the one willing us to change, willing us to respond to others, as we read in these passages here, with joy, not hatred. Sorry, with love, not hatred. With joy, not sorrow. With peace, not discord, with patience, not impatience, with kindness, not cruelty, with goodness, not evil, and with faithfulness, not disloyalty. But without the Holy Spirit of God supernaturally empowering you to do this, the heart of stone, which is a bad tree, could never produce the fruits of the Spirit, not in a billion lifetimes. It's impossible to do so. It is only the Spirit of God that can produce these fruits, right? Like, they're fruits of what? The Spirit. The Spirit is the one doing them. And until this happens, we too are like the religious leaders of Jesus' day who will have loveless hearts. doesn't matter how much we want to love others. We don't have the God of love within us allowing and enabling us to actually love others. The Bible says God is love. And, is, and if God is within us, then we too will and must love others. That's what the fruits of the Spirit are. Think about this. These are just simply different manifestations of love, are they not? Why am I gentle? Because I am loving. Why, why do I be patient? Because of love. It's just different uh, ways that love is applied and manifested in our life. Why do we have joy? Love. Why do we have peace? Love. Why do we respond to others with patience, kindness, charity, goodness, and faithfulness? Is it because they deserve it? Did we deserve God's love? No. But we love because he first loved us. Because we have the love of God within us, who is willing us to work at loving others, who are quite often quite unlovely, we, it is only because of that that we can do so. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says this, Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. We could probably just camp out here for the rest of the morning and skip our other two verses because of how important this is for us to understand what love looks like. Now, some people, as we've talked about in the past couple of weeks, will say, well, love looks like being nice. Is that what love is? Just being nice? 
never saying hard truths, never being a Nathaniel who looks at David and says, you are the man? No, we have to call out sin with love and patience and grace and fortitude. The only way to love others as God loves us is to be indwelt by the power, which is God himself who gives us love, the Holy Spirit. This is why John, who is often called the disciple whom Jesus loved, wrote in 1 John chapter 3, here's what he said. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding within him. There is nothing more difficult. There's nothing more impossible in this life than loving the unlovely. There's nothing more difficult than loving your enemies, loving those who persecute you, especially when they show up within the walls of the church. It's extremely difficult, which is exactly why this is one of the clearest indicators that someone is a spiritual imposter. They don't do it. They fly off the handle. They respond in rage, anger, unrighteous anger, disrespect, contempt, divisiveness, all of, the, all of the fruits of the Spirit that we've studied this last year and a half throughout the New Testament, the bad fruits of the flesh, I should say, and not the fruits of the Spirit. And these indicate clearly who the, spirit, who the spiritual imposters are. In verse 23 of Matthew chapter 23, we find Jesus making this very same point by pointing out how the self-righteous, hypocritical leaders of his day were all about showing off their external religiosity. And at the same time, while they did that, they neglected the more weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Think about me with, with this for just a second here. What are justice, mercy, and faithfulness? What is that a manifestation of? Love. Is it not? That is love. It is manif- Why are we merciful? Because of love. Why do we pursue justice? Because of love. Why do we pursue faithfulness? Because of love. And yet they didn't have this. See, here's the thing. We talked about tithing two weeks ago. You can tithe all day long and you can do so without a heart of love. You can check the box and do that without any love at all, any godly love at all within you. And instead, you can do that with a heart that is full of pride and full of self-righteousness. Here's how this works. When you write your check, you throw it in the offering plate or you help, you know, it could be a soup kitchen, you name the nice thing. You can say, look at me. I'm the kind of person who ties. You might not say, look at me to others, but to yourself you do. You put the check in and you do so because you, it makes you feel have warm and fuzzies about how good you are. Look at me. I'm the kind of person who isn't selfish like all these other people who spend all of their time and money on what they want. I'm a tither. You see that? That's not love of God and love of others. That's love of self. And you can do this with just about anything. Look at me. I'm the kind of person who teaches Sunday school. I'm the kind of person who serves in the nursery. I deal with dirty diapers. I don't see everybody else doing that. I'm the kind of person who cleans the church, right? Like we can turn even these 
acts which appear selfless on the front into all about the self. That's how wicked our hearts are. But that is not godly love. That's self-righteous self-love, which is not true love at all. And so if that's you, if that's what drives your religion, your Christianity, then no, you have a heart that is not regenerated by the life-giving power of God. It's plain and simple. This is what the New Testament teaches us. If you are driven by self-love and it does not manifest in godly love of God and others, why is that? Because the God of love is not at work in you, willing you to work. You can live a Mother Teresa-type life. Claim you believe in God all you want. Maybe even read your Bible. Maybe even go to church most Sundays. And it's simply going to result in what Jesus said back in Matthew 7. If you don't have love, here's what he said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And that word lawlessness, as we're going to see here in a few verses, Jesus charges these religious leaders with that very same description. He calls them lawless. When it comes to true love, true law-keeping, true obeying God, serving him and serving others, what does God care about? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Why? Because that's love. That's what it is. It's manifestations of love. And Jesus couldn't make it any more clear with how important these weightier matters of the law are, which is why he compares what the religious leaders are doing with straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. This is some brilliant use of irony here. It's absolutely brilliant. We briefly talked about this last uh, two weeks ago, but as we discussed there, for the Jewish people, the gnat and the camel, what were they? Two unclean animals. I don't know why you'd want to eat a gnat, let alone a camel, but whatever. But they're unclean was the point. You weren't allowed to eat them. And if you were, you were ceremonially unclean. It was not allowed. And so the idea here that Jesus is pointing out, he's saying the religious leaders, they're working so hard to strain out this tiny little gnat out of their drink. And yet while they do that, they have no problem at all swallowing this massively unclean camel, which is the largest unclean animal of them all for them. Which the point here he's making is that these people are extremely unclean. You can, you can deal with that now, but it doesn't matter. You just swallowed a camel, buddy. You're extremely unclean. You're filthy. And they were extremely unclean because their hearts were unclean, which leads us to our second point. To detect imposters, we need to be on the lookout for unloving hearts, but secondly, unwashed hearts. Look at verse 25 with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Have you ever grabbed a cup on your counter that you thought was clean, filled it full of water, and went to take a drink, and as you started drinking, something didn't taste right? And you pull back to look that the water that was once pure has now this yellowish kind of color. And you realized that you just drank water mixed with curdled milk. Pretty gross, right? Didn't taste good, I bet, even a little bit. 
Even though you filled that cup full of clean water, it didn't matter because there was contamination in the cup. And that contamination contaminated the clean drinking water and made it something you didn't want to drink. The same concept here, church, is true of our hearts. See, you can fill your heart full of good work after good work after good work, but if your heart has curdled milk all along the bottom of it, it's just going to contaminate all of those good works, which is, which is exactly what we just talked about a minute ago and how the human heart does good things for wrong motives. And does God want our good works if they are attached to our sinful motives? No, he doesn't. Not any more than you or I want a drink of water out of a cup that's full of partially curdled milk. It's gross, and it is also gross to God. This is why the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Take the good works, mix it with a corrupted heart. What do you get? Filthy rags, not good works. That's how this works. And so due to the wickedness of the human heart, not only do we corrupt good things by making them basically idolatrous monuments to worship ourselves, but we are blind and incapable of even seeing our ridiculous hypocrisy that's at play in our lives. This is why Jesus calls the religious leaders blind hypocrites. I mean, he calls them blind all the time and hypocrites all the time, but this is why he's calling them that. And in verse 25, Jesus gives us here the two sins that they were guilty of that, they were, that was connected to this blindness and this hypocrisy. Do you see what they are in verse 25? Greed and self-indulgence. Those are the two sins that are directly connected to this blindness and hypocrisy. I don't think I ever would have realized the connection Jesus is making here if it wasn't for our study through Ecclesiastes. Uh, and this last week, we looked at greed. And for those that were there, what did Quaheleth tell us about greed? Is it something that's readily apparent in our lives or is it a tricksy sin? It's deceiving. It's a really hard sin to detect. As a pastor, I've never had somebody come to me and say, pastor, I need counsel. Why, what's going on? My life is a mess. Really, what's happening? I am so greedy. Oh, let's, let's work on that, right? Nobody ever does that. I should have asked my dad and Pastor Bob. I bet they haven't either, okay? And I doubt it's ever going to happen to me because the reality is greed is a sneaky sin. We don't think we're greedy because what we do is we compare ourselves with all the super greedy people around us and we don't see it in ourselves. We all have a blind spot to our own greed. As we talked about in our Ecclesiastes class, shameless plug, with the other sins, it's pretty obvious when you're sinning. When you deliberately lie to somebody, you know you're lying. When you murder someone, you're not like, oh, how'd that knife get there, right? Like, you know you're killing them. Same with stealing, same with adultery. And it's because these sins are blatantly obvious when you do them. You know you're sinning when you engage in them. But with greed, it's not. It's blinding. That's why Jesus called these people blind guides. They're blind to it. How are the religious leaders full of greed? Well, over and over, Jesus gives us examples, especially in Matthew 23, but they gave to get. They served to be served. 
And this is why Jesus rebuked them earlier in this chapter for how they love to sit in the place of honor at the feast and in the tabernacle. They love to be called rabbi, which is teacher. And they did all of this not because they loved serving God with all their heart and then loving their neighbor as themselves. They did this because they were greedy. They were greedy and they loved nothing but themselves and their religiosity actually served to just blind them from how greedy they were. See, if you're doing good things for the wrong reason, you're not going to always detect that you're doing it for a wrong reason because greed's hard to detect. And this activity you're doing, you're going to trick yourself into thinking, look at all the things I'm doing. I'm, I'm the kind of person who ties. I'm the kind of person who goes to church every Sunday. I don't miss as much as all most of the other people, right? Like you start to think this way. And so it's a blinding effect that it has. And it also, as it does with the religious leaders here, it makes you a hypocrite as well. Instead of continually cleaning the outside of the cup and pouring good works into a dirty cup, what should they have done? Jesus says you should have cleaned the inside of the cup so that they could be truly clean. But in order to be clean, what does that require? Requires a heart that's not full of curdled milk at the bottom. You've got to clean that thing out. You need a new heart or a regenerate heart, which leads us to our final point. Look at verse 27 and 28 with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. In verse 28, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand what happened at Passover time during Jesus's day. And what happened was all of the pilgrims, all the Jewish pilgrims, they were coming to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And along the way, there would be you know graves all along the way. And sometimes they'd get grown over with grass and they weren't really easy to see. And if you touch that grave, you would be considered unclean for seven days, as I believe it's Numbers, uh, yep, it's Numbers 19.16, which says you'll be unclean for seven days if you touch a grave or a corpse. And so they didn't want to do that because they wanted to be able to celebrate the Passover. And so the solution to this was they started marking the graves by whitewashing them or by plastering them before Passover so that it would stand out to people. It would be an obvious, wow, okay, don't touch that. Don't go near that. That was the reason for it. And so with this picture in mind, Jesus turns to the religious leaders and he tells them, you know what? You're exactly like those whitewashed tombs is what you are. See, on the outside, you appear all pristine, beautiful, white, clean. But on the inside, you are full of rot and decay. Let me ask you, church, do imposters of the faith ever serve in soup kitchens? Do imposters of the faith ever give money to the poor? Yes, they do. Do they ever do a lot of good things? Do they teach Sunday school classes? Do they pastor churches sometimes? Absolutely, they do. And they do so with the outside cleaned up in order to try to mask the rot that is within. The truth is they are anything but clean. For on the inside, they are full of spiritual rot spiritual decay. And the reason is for this is because they have hearts that are spiritually dead, unregenerate, which is what we've discussed before about how this is definitely hypocrisy. Yes, but it's also, as Jesus calls out here, it's lawlessness. 
straight up lawlessness. Think with me for a minute. Why is Jesus calling them out here for lawlessness? Is he saying, listen, religious leaders, if you had simply obeyed all the laws that Moses gave you, that the Bible commanded, then you would not be lawbreakers and you would be fine. No. He's not saying that if you had simply obeyed all the laws, you would have been successful in cleaning up the inside of the cup. That's not what he's saying, right? He's not saying moral obedience can bring dead bones back to life. So what's he doing here? Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has continually rebuked the Pharisees for disobeying the law of God in order to follow whose law? Man's, right? They're justifying their disobedience and calling it obedience by imposing man's laws on top of God's, their traditions. This happened with the Sabbath. This happened with false oaths, as we saw a couple few weeks ago, where they were swearing upon, you know, Jerusalem, the altar, all these things, and certain ones were binding and certain ones weren't. We saw this way back in Matthew with Corbin, which was where you could basically say the word Corbin, and it meant that you didn't have to take care of your family when they got older. It didn't mean you didn't have to keep your vows in terms of if you promised to do giving. You could do whatever you want with it. It was dishonesty. It was lying is what it was. And it happened with a host of other things. And so instead of seeing their sin, which is what it was, as sin, what did they call it? righteousness. This is right. We're doing the right thing, right? Because, well, let me explain. And they had this big, long explanation, which we all do. Like, it's very rare where we just sin. And we're like, yeah, I'm going to sin because it's, it's fun. I know I shouldn't do it. We make excuses for it. We justify it. We try to reason ourselves through why we are in a special circumstance where our sin is justified. And yet before God, it's not. And it makes us simply lawless, which is what Jesus is calling these spiritual imposters out for being. They are lawless imposters of the faith. They are not truly on God's side. They are on their side, and they're using their religiosity in order to deceive themselves and others. And yet, sadly, what do so many today do about these imposters of the faith? Not a thing. Not a thing. Not only do they not even lift a finger to stop them, but sadly, many Christians even support them and build them up. They platform them. They make excuses for them. Oh, seriously, you're not a sinner? You've never sinned before, Mr. Righteous? They'll say things like that. We're all sinners. God loves sinners, right? Like, just lighten up. They enable them. And, as we'll see in the verses to come, not only do they do that, but they support them as those false teachers, those imposters, often even then go on to attack God's true messengers. That's what we're going to see in the weeks to come. That's exactly what they do. Now, in our country here, it's not very common where, some, where someone who is a messenger of God is murdered by one of these imposters, but that's because we have laws. <laughs> you know, I mean, if there were no laws, I think we'd be shocked how often people go Cain on their brother Abel. But today, you can't do that without major serious consequences, so it manifests in all of these other sins, backbiting, division, slander, gossip, tearing people down, all of the bad one another's, the fleshly one another's that we don't want to do, which is just sin. And yet these lawless, blind, self-righteous, praise-of-man-loving hypocrites are not only full of spiritual death and decay, as we saw back in verse 13, what are they doing? They're barring people from the kingdom of heaven. 
They're standing in front of the door and saying, not only am I not going in, but you're not going in either, buddy. They're keeping people from the path to life. What is the path to life? Is it living a perfect, righteous life without any lawlessness or hypocrisy? Clearly not. The truth is there is no life found in death. No matter how much you try to get a corpse to do things, it's not going to work until there's life brought back into the corpse. And so there must be life there. But it must be life that it comes from the author and giver of life, who is Christ Jesus himself, who alone frees us from sin and death and raises us to eternal life. One of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible is Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul writes this. I want to read all, verse, all 11 verses here. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that word condemnation mean? Being condemned, being rejected, being sentenced before God because of your sin. He's saying there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse five, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. We're going to see that in the weeks to come. Even goes after God's messengers. It does not to submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. There is only one way to clean the inside of the cup. There is only one way to bring the spiritually dead to life. And it's the life-giving power of God that we just read about in those 11 chapters of Romans chapter 8. It's life-giving power who raises the dead to life. And it does so, he does so, so that we can finally love and live for him through the power of his Holy Spirit who indwells us, who lives within us. Maybe you're here this morning and you are feeling the weight of God's law. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the 500th time. You're feeling the righteous demands of it that you could never meet. And you're realizing that finally. Maybe you're realizing that you have an unloving heart, an unwashed heart, and an unregenerate heart. Well, then what should you do? It's actually quite simple. It's actually very simple. It's so simple a child can understand it. Trust in him. Trust in his righteous works, which leads to no condemnation, to no judgment, to no rejection. 
Trust in him and his blood, which washes even the most unclean heart there is, white as snow. For he will not only save you, but he will empower you then to live righteously and victoriously in a world that is full of enemies and imposters. As we're going to sing in a moment, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Apart from Christ, every single one of us are unloving, unclean, unregenerate sinners who are destined for the wrath of God. But by faith in him and by faith in him alone can we be made white as snow. That is a joy and a hope that you can take to the bank. Sinners, destined for God's wrath, no goodness within us at all because we corrupt even the good things we do with the sin in our hearts can be made washed white as snow. If that's not a reason to praise God, I don't know what is. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this text. Father, I just pray that we would, that we would, for those of us who are your children, yes, you do empower us to live righteously, but every once in a while, the flesh does wreak its ugly head and we have to kill it and continue killing it. And we will have to continue this process of sanctification, of becoming more Christ-like until the day that we see you. And so empower us further to do so. Give us the desire. Give us the passion. Help us to see the reason for it and to live for righteousness. Not because we can attain it, but only through Christ do we have it. Father, I pray for the one here today who has been blinded by their religiosity, who, though they may not be aware of it, They've been trusting in their own righteousness. Maybe even their own righteousness plus belief in God. Maybe their own righteousness plus faith in Jesus, which as Galatians says, is a completely another gospel. It is Christ alone in which we are found. So Father, help us to rest in the gospel. Help us not to forget it. And help us also to bring the gospel message of salvation to all those who are in darkness who desperately need it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.